I'm excited to talk about this movie. There's so very much to talk about. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture, in order from the very first award ceremony to someday the present year. This week, we are continuing the 1934 Academy Award nominees. I am one of your hosts, Susan Araslin. I am David Dahl. And this week, we are discussing Cecil B. DeMille's Horny on Maine. Yep. I mean, Cleopatra. <laughs> yeah, the horniest film ever, the horniest film ever made. I think it, I think it might be. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. No question. <laughs> I know that, like, 1950s girl prison movies still exist, but, like, this is hornier than those. This is a hornier movie than Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. <laughs> And, like, I really, I want to spe- specify, it's not the sexiest movie ever made. It's not even, like, the most erotic movie ever made. It's just so horny. And so horny for weird-ass shit. <laughs> the plot of this movie, which I guess we should get through really quickly before we get to the actual substance of the film, which is all of the outfits and how horny it is, yes. is basically just... There's about 20 minutes at the beginning of it before you hit Julius Caesar, where Cleopatra is feuding with her brother, who you never meet in the whole film, and is thrown out by the prime minister into the desert, sneaks back in to meet with Julius Caesar in a rug, and seduces him with talk of India. Which apparently the bit about the rug is, if not historically accurate, at least apocryphal. Yes. That she was presented to him rolled up in a rug. But then uh, the entire rest of the movie is basically speedrunning Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra. Um, the, with occasional breaks to be super horny. <laughs> It's really a shut up and play the hits version of Julius Caesar, where like you, you get the Ides of March, you get a two Brute, except you don't even get that. You get you two Brutus. Ah, <laughs> you get um, <laughs> you get a reference to friends, Romans, countrymen, where Octavian Caesar just like flips off Mark Antony about his terrible speech writing skills, and then you get like the back third of Antony and Cleopatra in a real weird ass montage followed by both of them dying. But then the bulk of the like runtime is spent on Claudette Colbert wearing incredible outfits and seducing both Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Uh, And being the single most expensive burlesque show ever produced. I mean, like, Let's let's fucking start at the very beginning with I didn't know they had CGI like boobs in 1934, but I don't know what the explanation for that woman holding up like two lamps full of incense in the credit scene sequence is if those aren't some like dead or alive CGI boobs, because so, uh, yeah, fun fact the Hayes Code in this year, in 1934, whoever, like, the group was that was supposed to enforce the Hayes Code, decided that they were going to start doing it. So, like, every movie that we're going to watch uh, in 1935 on is no longer pre-code. And apparently, like, this was news in the film industry. 
So Cecil B. DeMille was like, yeah, okay, cool. (laughs) Then I'm going to show as much skin as humanly possible before this goes into effect. And that woman is naked. It is an actual woman who is totally naked, but artistically lit so you don't, like, see nipples or, like, full frontal nudity. But she is 100% naked. And, like, first person you see in the movie. (laughs) Yep. As just, like, a a title card. Mm -hmm. Though the titles for this movie are incredible. And, like, the first four minutes are just, you know, like... Here's the Rosetta Stone, except that it's carved with everybody's name for who is going to be in the film. And here's a pyramid. And here's a, like, servant girl holding up two lamps with no clothes on. Yeah. The title sequence is legit incredible. And, like, I don't know why more movies don't do the, like, carving the credits into physical objects bit. Because it's great. This movie. Huh. <laughs> It is, I have to say, like, it is it is possibly the movie that I have found the most entertaining of any movie we have watched, but was absolutely not the best by any measure. <laughs> no, the, the, like, the storytelling in this is garbage. The dialogue is so stilted. It is really just like, well, I guess we should throw some words in so people know what's happening. And now, more side boob. And I thought I was going to have to have, like, a complex, nuanced discussion of, like, the actual historical Cleopatra versus Claudette Colbert and, like, the racism of that being sort of subtle and insidious and weird. But then they just go whole hog with the racism about halfway in. You know, I I want to talk about that because there's something kind of complicated here, actually. I do think that there is a, a nuanced discussion to be had. I mean, first of all, like, Cleopatra was Greek, and her, like, forebears for a good chunk of time were banging their actual brothers and sisters, like, for a century or two. Sure. So she definitely was white-ish, like, Mediterranean white, but she was white. She probably didn't look like Claudette Colbert. (laughs) Yeah, I I think the thing that rubs me the wrong way is less the casting and more the weird scene in Rome. Right, that's what I wanted to get to. Go ahead. Yeah, where a woman asks if Cleopatra is black and everyone just laughs at her like it's the funniest thing they've ever heard in their life. I went back and watched that scene immediately afterward because I was like, wait, what the fuck? Because they're all talking about, like, oh, she's so seductive and beautiful and blah, blah, blah. Which, first of all, like, if you've ever seen the coins that were struck to represent her face, like, she was not classically beautiful, shall we say. She was no Nefertiti, who was black, by the way. Um, and in no way related to Cleopatra, but was queen of Egypt. And an actual writing at the time said that, you know, she wasn't extraordinarily beautiful, but that she had this incredible presence and was very, very charming and, and very seductive. That scene, the girl who asks, and I say girl because she's like by far the youngest woman in that group and obviously is supposed to be very naive. And so when they're talking about an Egyptian person and she asks, is she black? It was interesting to me because I felt like that was giving a nod to the fact that 
yeah, like a lot of Egypt would have been black at the time. And then everyone laughed at her. And I was like, are they laughing at her? Because the idea that a beautiful, seductive woman is black is ridiculous. Or are they laughing at her because she doesn't know who Cleopatra is? And like, either way, it's it kind of rubs me the wrong way oh yeah me too but i was like are they what what part are they laughing at because if you did that today there would be no way of being like oh well but the whole point was that she was very naive and had never like heard of cleopatra and it's like yeah but you also set up an interpretation here that black women can't be beautiful so like this scene definitely does not Past the screen test of time. Yeah, and like I and I would be more down with like the movie caring about that, about like Cleopatra's Greek ancestry, if it weren't such a clear like everyone in Egypt is white except the servants. And even that's just like a very few of them. Yeah, that's when you need like big muscly servants who like it's real fucked up. Right. Like she has a whole bunch of super white, super blonde, super blue-eyed attendants. Mhm. <laughs> like where did they come from? Uh, I get that that's like Cecil B. DeMille's whole thing, but like this is the most bring out the girls movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Specifically it all this movie all revolves around that insane seduction scene on the barge. Like, it's almost halfway, exactly halfway into the movie. Mm -hmm. It's where the racism really kicks into high gear. It is absolutely fucking bonkers on every single level. And, like, it is also the most, like, Cecil B. DeMille the movie gets. Yeah, let's talk through this scene. Because, like, there's a lot that happens. The first third of that scene... I actually think is kind of the best part of the movie in terms of like actually functionally doing the storytelling. Mm -hmm. Claudette Colbert's attempt to kind of seduce Mark Antony through like, I mean, essentially she is simultaneously sort of negging him and using reverse psychology on him. And it's <laughs> super charming. Claudette Colbert does like great work with it. I think it's probably the best dialogue anywhere in the movie, which is not really that high of a bar to clear, but still. Right. And, like, it does great work. And then suddenly she says, oh, they're taking the oysters out of the river. And things take a real turn toward the, like, bad acid. <laughs> uh, yeah, so when they take, quote, take the oysters out of the river... One of the big muscly servants hauls up a fishnet full of women who are like, they're not in mermaid outfits, but it's like very sort of, you know, water nymphy type things. And there's like 10 of them. Like, there's a lot. <laughs> and they all begin crawling toward Mark Antony's feet. They are never off the ground. And they have these little oyster shell basically compacts that they open up and all of them are full of pearls like some are full of black pearls some are full of white pearls and cleopatra takes some and then throws them to the servant girls and then turns to mark antony and says go on throw them and then 30 servant girls like all attack each other half dressed to get pearls <laughs> 
And then it gets weirder. Yeah, because, th- I mean, first of all, I also want to state, we'll get to the end and then I have a big question for you, but I don't think it is just pearls. I think there's just jewels in there, in some mm. of them. Like, I think there's just, like, emeralds, which it gets to something that I want to talk about when we get through the women in leopard outfits, who are just treated like leopards. Like, no one seems to acknowledge them, except for Mark Antony in one line, as, like, actual women. Everyone else on the barge seems to, like, basically see them as animals. Yeah, there, there's, like, a bunch of women who are in... I guess you would call them, like, leotards, leopard print leotards, but they have, like, a little tiny bit of a skirt. But we're talking, like, if you wore this to figure skate in the Olympics, it would be too too short. Yeah. And so they, like, set the leopard girls on the servant girls who are scrabbling for jewels. And then they start being whipped by uh, muscly servants. <laughs> Like, with actual whips. And then they bring out the flaming hoops, I swear to God. (laughs) And start whipping the leopard women through the flaming hoops. And the thing about this is it is constantly intercut with, like, shots of Mark Antony being so into it. Like, this is his exact fetish. And, And it's... Yeah, and this is like... How long is this scene? It's like 10 minutes long. It is extremely long. And there's no speaking. It's just music and screaming. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, like, it's, it's again, Claudette Colbert has been there for the whole scene, being Claudette Colbert in an incredible outfit. And, like, this is what finally gets Mark Antony going. <laughs> Yeah, they do keep cutting back to his face. The look on his face is straight up Looney Tunes or like Mary Melody's cartoon wolf. Yeah. He almost has his tongue hanging out of his mouth. But then after Cleopatra indulges his leopard women jumping through hoops fetish, (laughs) they finally embrace and a legitimately incredible shot proceeds to dolly out from them on this throne through the entire barge where like everyone like a hundred people are all sort of in unison doing all of these different actions two guys are beating on giant drums while people like fan to the beat of the giant drums while like 80 people are rowing gigantic oars and you just like pull back through all of it and see the full set, and you're like, Jesus Christ, because it's amazing. I crunched the numbers on how much this movie would have cost to make in today money, and it was like $15.5 which doesn't sound like a lot, because there are actors now who command that themselves for a role, but when you consider that all of the actors here would have been on contract... Most of that money went to paying for the stuff in this movie. And there is so much stuff. Yeah. Claudette Colbert probably wears 20 different dresses in this movie. Yes, though they do save money by having those only cover about what three dresses would cover on her body. (laughs) Um. Yeah, but then they blew it all on her various headdresses. That's very true. So uh, another little anecdote about this movie. 
Claudette Colbert apparently had suffered from appendicitis on her previous film. So she could only stand for a few minutes at a time. I guess she must have been recovering from surgery or she was just in like incredible pain. So the entire trope of Cleopatra constantly lounging everywhere, which will then come up in like the Burton and Taylor one and pretty much every representation of Cleopatra ever after comes from the fact that Claudette Colbert was so sick she couldn't stand up. (laughs) And boy, does she spend a lot of time lounging. That makes so much sense to me for an incredibly horny reason, Mm. which is whenever Cecil B. DeMille convinces her to stand up, I have seen Nicki Minaj videos less obsessed with ass than the shots following Claudette Colbert in this movie when she's actually standing up and walking around. And every dress that she wears basically just covers her ass crack. Like there is no... Yeah. It is all back. (laughs) And is like an incredibly tight bandage dress. Yeah. Like always. And the dresses are absolutely amazing. (laughs) But uh, as you called it, the innovation inside boob in this movie... (laughs) Yeah, I seriously, like, at the end of recording last week, I said that the outfit she's wearing on the Wikipedia page was the inspiration for Vampirella, and that was actually one of the least ridiculous side boob outfits she wears in this movie. I don't know how, but I think I've seen 130% of Claudette Colbert's tits, and you, she's never topless in this film. <laughs> like, I... it. Yeah. No, she's never topless, but boy, is she, like, riding that razor's edge a whole lot. And it's not just her. It's, like, everybody. Yeah. Caesar's wife is wearing this incredibly beautiful, like, bias-cut dress that is cut in, like, an inch and a half on the side so that you can see a whole lot of side boob. Of course, all of the servant girls are, like, mostly naked and what's what's funny is the servant girls aren't any more naked than cleopatra if anything they are more dressed here's the thing though i genuinely think that like she seems to have a different like main attendant that has lines in every scene and i think it's based on camera angle your boobs look best from 45 degrees above so in this scene you're gonna say the lines (laughs) You look best from 15 degrees below, so you're going to say lines to her in this one. Like, because every single scene, there's a different one talking to her. And, like, the one that inspired this is the attendant in the scene where uh, she's getting ready for Caesar right before he dies, Mm -hmm. who you never see before or after. But there's a big crane shot, and boy, does she have cleavage. Yeah, it's like the screen tests for all of the attendants in this movie was just, all right, put this pasty on, and now we are going to shoot your breasts from 180 degrees. Or 360. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) They, like, got out the crane and were like, all right. Flip through. Whose boobs look best from the crane shot? Mm, yeah, okay. Uh, number eight. Who's number eight? <laughs> oh, God. The other bit... <laughs> the other bit they do, like, three different times in three different Claudette Colbert outfits, 
an outfit that looks on first glance like she's basically wearing a micro bikini top. Yes. And then you go, oh, now there must be fabric around that. Right, but it's the exact color of her skin. Yes. So you cannot tell where the, like, where her boobs end and the dress begins at all. Yeah, she has basically, like, embroidered pasties on in various, you know, Egyptian-esque shapes. And then she'll have, like, I guess a top that is just Claudette Colbert dyed silk. Yeah, it's bonkers. Um, and, and, like... Again, it happens like three separate times. Yeah. And like, I know we're obsessing about this and it probably makes us sound weird. And also we are weird. But like, it's, but like, you don't understand. And also I like boobs. Sure. Me too. Yeah. You've met my <laughs> wife. But I, like, I, I do, I do think like legitimately two thirds of this film is dedicated to Claudette Colbert wearing outfits where your immediate reaction is, whoa, what is going on with her boobs? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And to be fair, they're pretty great. Yeah. They're obviously, like, very good boobs <laughs> and can be shot from multiple angles and can have multiple pieces of them be the part that is being shown off, whether it's under boob, side boob, cleavage, like, we've got it all. <laughs> But, like, the the thing, the, like, hilarious mismatch of this film is that while this is going on, and I feel like this is kind of the, like, this is the Hayes Code enforcement thing, and it just makes the movie seem way more strange and way more sexual, is, like, no one ever just gets horny for Claudette Colbert. No matter how many outfits she comes out in that are absurd, no one's ever, like, whoa about her it's always like she's talking about india or d d women are jumping through flaming hoops there's just always some bizarre it just has to be super extra like julia caesar doesn't get hot for her until she like wraps up in a sheer silk samite whatever thing and it's like well let me tell you about india and then he's like oh now i'm dtf whereas mark antony is like I need at least 100 women almost tearing each other's clothes off in order to get turned on. Yeah. And like, I... <laughs> There's also that weird scene the first time you're in Rome where like eight different women come up and just start trying to tear off Mark Antony's clothes, basically. Yep. And then he just wanders over to his wife, who's 15 feet away. Yeah, the representation of Rome in this movie is really one of my favorite things, because apparently Rome is just the interior of the most beautiful art deco slash neoclassical hotel lobby you've ever seen. And that's where everyone hangs out. Yeah. And, like, lies on each other and rubs up on each other while, you know, whoever's spouse is standing five feet away. <laughs> that was also when the plot started to really piss me off in this movie. Both because it's the first scene where you're like, oh, we're just kind of going to get the highlights of the plays everybody already knows because Cecil B. DeMille could care less. But also because, like, it's where you kind of start to figure out this movie's weird ass fucking gender bullshit 
I mean, besides all the outfits, that what it's going to do plot-wise with weird-ass gender bullshit, where, like, the idea of retelling Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra with Cleopatra as sort of the central character of both is kind of fascinating and, like, in theory, lets you kind of talk about her as this sort of woman who who played all sides and was dedicated to her country and, like, was able to outthink these superior military leaders for at least a while. Right. And instead, it just ends up being Cleopatra, Rome's Yoko. Like... <laughs> I... Yeah, basically... She genuinely falls in love with both Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, is a sucker both times, and both times both men just inexplicably start doing the stupidest shit because they're dating a woman now. I mean, to be fair, there is some historical accuracy to that. Sure, but like you can- On the part of the dudes like losing their mind over this chick and just being like, Rome, whatever- Sure, but, like, you could, that would at least be an interesting, like, following her ability to do that, making that central, would be really interesting. And instead, it just seems to, like, it seems like it could basically be any woman. The argument is basically always, like, chicks, man, and not, like, Cleopatra specifically is so bonkers hot that men betray their country for her. It's, like... Men dating women. It always goes wrong. <laughs> I think I think with the Caesar relationship, there's more of that of like Cleopatra was actually quite intelligent and, and she she knew where her assets were, I guess. <laughs> Though in this case her assets are her boobs. But with the Mark Antony one, it is it does feel much more like guys just like chicks and will throw over anything to get some. And it's also Claudette Colbert seems to, well, the the representation of Cleopatra in this movie, I don't know if it was her choice, it was probably not, because it's in the text. She completely loses her mind and falls in love with these people in a way that doesn't seem to be consistent with the idea of, like, an excellent and intelligent ruler who realizes that, you know, she's a woman, so she's gonna have to, like, use a different strategy than if she were a general. Yeah. When she loses her mind over Julius Caesar dying, I thought like, oh, she genuinely loved him. And then that explains the like more manipulative relationship of convenience that she has with Mark Antony, which actually goes a long way to solving my like big problem with Antony and Cleopatra as a play where I feel like it's not particularly well explained why Cleopatra betrays him besides just like women, right? And, like, we're really going to, like, get into it, and that's so interesting, and it's great that she's the main character. Except, nope. It makes even less sense. She never betrays him. She just appears to, to him, because he's a crazy person. And he stabs himself. Yeah. Oh, man, that scene really, really squicked me out, where he's, like, lying on her sofa holding his side, and, and he's like, how deep do you have to stab to kill yourself? And I'm like... Whoa, that is some dark shit. <laughs> yeah, but it's also some like, it's, <laughs> it's also a you could have waited five minutes death scene. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's there so that they can reconcile before his death 
so that their love can be good and pure. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the worst of both worlds because both you get her as kind of this romantic sap that falls super hard for dudes, but also she's still she's still the yoko she's still like this manipulative figure that drives men to ruin but she doesn't even get the upshot of like being a jezebel like it doesn't even she doesn't even get the empowerment end of that and there's very little of her having any real agency as far as any of the military campaigns or the various like political machinations that the actual historical Cleopatra had a lot to do with. It's more like, oh, I fell really in love with this person. And so whatever it is that they want to do for me is fine. The hottest she ever gets in this movie is when Mark Antony just says war a lot and repeats, get me my legions and nonsensically slaps one of her servants. No, punches him in the face. And, uh, and like, she is so into it, she unkills him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, like, it... Uh. And then there's her death scene, which uh, has another fun anecdote attached to it, because apparently Claudette Colbert was horribly afraid of snakes. Which, would you not kind of i mean i guess if you're under contract you don't really have a choice but i feel like i would go you know what i can't i just i have a super huge phobia of snakes so you're gonna have to like cast somebody else but cecil b demille walked on set with a boa constrictor wrapped around his neck and like terrified her and then said oh here's here's what you're gonna use and handed her a garden snake here is the thing about that that sounds like a cool story that cecil b demille made up to make himself sound cool i think it makes him sound like a fucking asshole i mean it sort of but in a way that like i solved the problem and like it definitely it it feels like one of those things that like a press agent made up in 1934 and people were like yeah sure but I don't know. Maybe maybe she was actually deathly afraid of snakes and they aversion therapied her into being able to handle a garden snake. Yeah, they were like, hey, it could have been the big giant one, but by comparison, isn't this better? <laughs> She's like, yes, please just hand me the baby snake. <laughs> uh, anyway, then she dies and like exquisite corpse has come to mean something else over the years. Oh, yeah. The last shot of her dead body is the most elegant dead, like, Hannibal wishes it could have a dead body that looked this good. <laughs> yes. And it is another one of those, like, great pull-out shots of the full set of the throne, where she's just kind of, just kind of chillin', dead, and looks great. End of film. <laughs> Apparently... One of the crowns that she wears on this film was something like 70 pounds. Jesus. Yeah. And she had, she like could barely stand, period. And they're like, yeah, throw a 70 pound crown on her head. That's fine. <laughs> There's like a lot of actor abuse in this movie behind the scenes. Like that and the snake. <laughs> I mean, behind the scenes is generous for a movie where women jump through flaming hoops. Yeah, that's that's fair. There's a lot of there's a lot of actor abuse on this movie. Full stop. <laughs> yeah. It was apparently shot 
in six weeks, which I find remarkable. Because how much time did they have to dedicate to building these sets? Because they are really extravagant and they're they're beautiful they're really beautiful sets but they are massive and actually the the art director for this movie also did shanghai express that makes a lot of sense yeah it was like what if you gave the guy who did shanghai express an unlimited budget and yeah, this is exactly the movie that he would make because it's so Art Deco. Yeah. He also did One Hour With You, but fuck that movie. Uh, <laughs> and and also like the sets for that movie are just the interiors of a wealthy person's house in Paris. They're like not that impressive. It's incredible. There's a scene where there's like a bull that they bring out that there's a dancer on the bull she looks like she's having a seizure. Like, I was actually really genuinely concerned for that actor. <laughs> Do you remember the part I'm talking about? Yes, it's also on the weird Mark Antony seduction barge. Oh, which we never got around to talking about the in-universe logistics of the seduction barge. Which is, like, that's really betting it all on getting the straight flush when you go, when you put that much effort into, you know what I bet he's into? Yeah, yeah. So many parts of, like, again, with the clams, I'm not, or the oysters, I'm not supposed to think that the actual, those are actual oysters just cash, like, she planned all this. Those are even in that universe, like, women who had to hang out in this net for like an hour until she said, oh, they're pulling up the oysters. Same with the weird women in leopard leotards, like... All of this stuff was pre-planned by Cleopatra to get Mark Antony hot. I mean, I guess it's plan B after just regular seducing him doesn't work, but it still seems like a bit of a leap. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely pulled from the Shakespeare play and then just expounded upon. In the Shakespeare play, I think they mentioned, and I'm not sure that this is historically accurate, but it was definitely like written down that she put perfume in the sails of her barge so that he would smell her before he saw her. Which, like, that's sexy. It is not, like, weird BDSM animal fetish with flaming hoops sexy. (laughs) Sure, I'm not questioning that, like, she shouldn't go all out or something, because, like, they do a good job, even in this film, of setting up, like, this is make or break. She has to seduce this guy. It's Egypt's only chance. But, like, the specific angles she chooses, or does she, like, size him up and have, like, a bunch of women in the back in toucan costumes and is like, no, nah, he's not a toucan guy. He's a leopard-like guy. And, like, I, like... Because that's like she has literally every woman in Egypt <laughs> hanging out backstage mm-hmm. in various animal costumes and is like, mm-hmm. oh, oh, man, you gotta you gotta strike the jackals. Definitely not a jackal guy. He brought some dogs. So we gotta we gotta do the other thing. We gotta we gotta bring out the cats. Yeah. Like, it, yeah. Also, she doesn't have any kids in this movie, which I found really interesting because she has a kid with Caesar, and then she has two or three kids with Mark Antony. And they also, like, never touch on the weird stuff about how she was married to two of her brothers who were, like, children. Yeah, they did. 
understandably, I think, go don't go too deep on that one. But I do think it is weird that, like, this film feels like the whole thing could take place over the course of a month. Mm. Which is weird. Because, yeah, it's in real time, like, ten years or something like that. There's a good chunk of time between Caesar's death and her being like, oh, Mark Antony is the guy that I gotta go after. Right. And and in this movie, it feels like a week. Right. And again, there's a while with her and Mark Antony together that, again, feels like a week or two. Right. Right. Oh, we should talk about the battle scene. Oh, right. Because that's where Cecil B. DeMille's directing just totally isn't up to the task. I don't know if it's even that, yes, definitely that, but also I don't feel like the technology was up to it either, because it's all, like, handheld cameras, and there were, you know, they didn't have steady cam technology. (laughs) There's definitely this sense of, like, one, it's the B-roll team. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a real, like, cut, we got the three seconds we need, let's go, 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 we're doing this in six weeks. And two, like... It definitely feels like there was just this storyboard for the battle montage, and then they just got the shots for the storyboard, and, like, Mm -hmm. there's no sense of narrative coherence to it. Things like, there's a shot of, like, a barge and the mast is up and starts to fall, and then just it immediately jump cuts to the mast, like, completely in the water. And that happens, like, three or four times. And, like, I, it's obviously supposed to be, like, the chaos of battle. Right, D- yeah. No man can... But, like, instead it's just, like, this random series of shots, essentially, that are just really jarring and not very good. Every single person is sprayed with blood before the shot. Like, you never see anyone get, oh, they get stabbed, and, like, there's blood pouring out. It just looks like they took a garden hose with some red liquid and, like, got dots of blood all over everyone. It is not the best battle scene in film history. It feels like they were going to do one of those big Game of Thrones season ender battles that was going to be like 20 minutes long and then filming it was such a goddamn disaster that they just took the like two minutes of semi-usable footage they got out of it and like randomly cut it up. Yeah. I don't think that's what actually happened, but that's what it feels like. It's also really jarring editing wise because the rest of the movie feels so contrived and so controlled that this just feels like, well, whatever's clear enough, throw it in there. Well, and everything else has these like long, languid pans across these huge sets. And like the camera never moves, it's constant jump cuts. The jump cuts are sometimes between parts of the same shot. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's not great. Despite that, the cinematographer, Victor Milner, did win Best Cin- Cinematography. It's the only win that this movie had. It's kind of the only... Well, they didn't have Best Costume Design yet, did they? Not until 1948. Yeah. Because this would have been an absolute shoot. Oh, yeah. Like, there's no question. Because otherwise, yeah, that's, that is the thing this deserved to win. It definitely doesn't deserve Best Picture. (laughs) Spoiler, I guess. But just because the story is so badly told, so badly paced, the dialogue is at times painful. Yeah, apparently the reviewer for The New Yorker at the time said that the dialogue was, quote, the worst I have ever heard in the talkies, end quote. (laughs) 
Now, I wouldn't go that far because, again, in old Arizona continues to exist. <laughs> Maybe he hadn't seen it. Well, I would say Viva Vila actually, or sorry, Viva Via has some worse dialogue than this movie. That's pr- that's fair. But it's also just like, it's not just that the dialogue is often bad. It's that just like what the dialogue is put to use for is bad. I, I texted you about how hilarious the like Ides of March prophecy is when like six <laughs> different people, he gets the soothsayer prophecy. He gets his wife's bad dream. His wife doubles down on the bad dream, grabbing his legs and refusing to let him go. He then goes and sees his mistress. His mistress is like, "Mm, got a bad feeling about this. Feels like a day where just something mysteriously bad's going to happen to you. And he's like, well, there's my chariot. Peace out. Gotta go. (laughs) The soothsayer then meets him on the steps of the set. For a, hey, callback, remember when I said you were going to die? You're still going to die. And he basically flips the dude both birds and goes, ain't dead yet, and then walks in to get stabbed. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's essentially what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and takes no notice of any of it. Just like, fuck all this shit. Nope. Yeah. So apparently Cecil B. DeVille's whole idea in making this movie was that he felt that the Shakespeare and uh, Shaw versions were too highbrow, and he wanted to bring the story of Cleopatra to the masses, and I'm like, nailed it, bro. (laughs) Definitely the lowbrow Cleopatra, you got it. I mean, I honestly, I, I think there's something to that. I think there's something to, like, let's speed run Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra and like focus on the woman focus on this female character that is like this through line through two really fascinating parts of history mm-hmm. but I do think that like it's not to me that this movie does the lowbrow version of the story it's that he is so clearly disinterested in the storytelling part of it like he so clearly is like yeah yeah yeah, yeah war Anyway, the girls, they're all arranged in this big circle. And then there's a flaming hoop. And like... We got to have fanning girls, like 80 of them. And they're all on the knees. And they like go all the way back on their back. And then all the way forward on their tummies. And you're like, what? My my Cecil B. DeMille has become indistinguishable from Andy Andy Daly's Don DeMello. But that's what he really feels like when you watch this movie. I'm really eager now, and I know it's going to be like a decade from today, but I'm super excited to see the Burton and Taylor one, which is pretty universally considered to be a terrible movie that looks beautiful. But, like, could it possibly be worse than this one as far as, like, storytelling is concerned? Right. Could it Could it get any more exactly between the two goalposts of awful and beautiful looking than this movie? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's even possible. So, yeah, I guess, um, should, should we rate this film? Because this is going to be hard for me. I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest. I swear to God, I hadn't even considered it until this very moment, and I'm suddenly <laughs> terrified. <laughs> yeah, we should rate this film. Um, I mean, like, on looks, this movie is an 11. <laughs> yeah. And I mean that also in the, in the like, 
sense of it being turned up to 11. <laughs> I feel for this one, I want to go to a different grading scale. I want to go to one of those, like, let's break out the score into five different things they used to do for video games in the 90s. Okay. So, like, side boob. Five guys screaming and giving a thumbs up. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, v- visuals, graphics, five guys giving a thumbs up. Um, s- story, w- one very sad guy. <laughs> uh, dialogue, also one very sad guy. <laughs> C- combat, a gun drooping. <laughs> Mew. Mew. Uh, then you have the, like, combined score that has nothing to do with any of that that's, like, 78. (laughs) So you were going to talk about the racism in the big Mark Antony scene, and, like, maybe I kind of tuned out about halfway through because I was just overwhelmed with horniness. Sure. Not with my own horniness, but the horniness of the movie overwhelmed me. I don't even remember there being any black people in that shot. I mean, multiple shots, but maybe there were. They were hauling the the oyster women out of the river. Ah, okay, okay. And it, it sort of starts on them and then sort of cranes in on the, the women being hauled up and then pulls back. Like, it's this thing right. where it starts as this one problematic thing and I'm like, Oh boy, I guess we need to talk about how black people only show up when there needs to be some physical labor. And then, whoa, no, that's not the most problematic thing in this shot. Whoa, not even top five. All right. Yeah, yeah. And... Okay, okay, yeah. So that that does happen. I, I guess I completely missed that because it was so brief. They also are the... Whenever there's like the gigantic like coffee tables full of meat, that get hauled in or out, and that's the only other time they ever appear. Yeah. You know, I, this brings up a really, something that I've been thinking about a lot, because we keep having these moments in movies, like, I think starting in 1932, where there is one black actor or two black actors who are in the movie for just, like, total throwaway parts, maybe not even speaking parts, and you gotta assume, right, that they would have been on contract, because everybody was. Did they just throw people in because they were like, well, we got this guy on contract and we need to get our money's worth, so, like, eh, throw him in a little linen skirt and have him be hauling up the Oyster Girls, you know? I guess. I mean, because I do, I that's what I thought we were gonna be, like, dealing with in terms of, like, another one weird problematic racist scene movie. Um, and instead, like, whoa, we we really just kind of got problematic bingo in a minute and a half. And and that's kind of the least of it. Uh, but yeah, it does feel like there's this oddly obligatory need to have black actors just to have something vaguely racist happen to them or at them. And then they're gone. Or or it's that they they felt like they had actors on contract, so you had to shove some scene in, and they didn't otherwise know how to have a black actor in the movie. It's almost like like it was done backward from the contract, is what I'm starting to suspect. Maybe. Maybe. That's weirdly optimistic as a read for why this keeps happening. I didn't feel like I was being optimistic at all. I was like, oh, it's capitalism being awful. <laughs> Right, but the other option is just, like, we gotta give the people what they want, 
nonsensical racism. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, uh, anyway, I... Yeah, I don't even know what to grade this film. It's like a five because my brain is broken and I don't know how to like... I, I don't know how to grade a film that is essentially an incredibly entertaining high-budget burlesque show, but a terrible story. And Claudette Colbert is actually, like, very captivating. She's She is as adorable as she is in It Happened One Night, if way less uh, naive. <laughs> yeah. To put it mildly. And she's, I mean, she is doing a great job with what she's given, and looks great. And and I think actually the guy who plays Caesar is pretty good too. The guy who plays Antony just spends most of the movie with his tongue hanging out of his mouth, essentially. The guy who plays Antony feels like the high school linebacker who's never really gonna be that cool again. Mm. At like 35. Yeah. Which yeah. is honestly kind of fine casting for Mark Antony. Oh yeah, absolutely. But like does not quite seem to be what the movie is going for with him. Yeah. So for the score for this movie, I, I there was a movie that you scored tilt, and like that's kind of where I am on this one. Uh, yeah, I think the reason I went with like the the like actual non joke reason I went with the like grade it like a game bit is that there definitely does seem to be that kind of like grading it on a curve thing I want to do with this which is kind of antithetical to what we usually do, where, like, a game by a, like, big developer kind of can't get worse than, like, a, a C+, like a, a high 70, and that, like, lets you know that it's garbage in some way, because if you grade lower than that, you get yelled at. Mm. And this feels like... It's weird to me this got nominated for Best Picture, because this feels like a movie that, like, makes a good amount of money that no one would ever nominate for an Oscar, like, this feels like a movie that the Oscars would be too good for these days. Right. I'm trying to think of something equivalent that, like, but everything we spend our budget on these days is not historical epics. No, honestly, I guess it is. This feels like if the, like, bad, one of those bad King Arthur movies they put out every two years got nominated for Best Picture. Or, like, Troy. Yeah, where, like, oh, made a lot of money. And, like, the sets are very pretty. And hot people were mostly naked in it because right. because history. Yeah, Troy is the... It's, it's like if Troy got nominated for Best Picture, which is crazy. And so, like, it feels like on a screen test of time level, like, everything this movie is good at is, like, not something the Oscars typically care about all that much. Like, I definitely think that if this movie came out today, it would sweep best costumes. Mm -hmm. But there's always stuff nominated in the costume category where, like, the movie was crap, but the costume designer got to have a field day because it was set in the 1600s. Yeah. The sequel to Elizabeth, which was not a good movie, still got nominated for best costumes because, of course, it did. Yeah. This feels like one of those, like, would sweep the sort of the bigger technical categories, but wouldn't even get nominated for best picture today kind of movies. And so, like, I guess are we rating... The question is, are we rating things out of 10 in terms of, like, the Oscars or just in terms of some different rubric of absolute film quality? 
Because, like... I mean, it's it's always, like, does it stand the screen test of time is the, is the score. And I guess, like, absolutely not in any way. <laughs> right, but, I mean, I guess what's weird to me is, like, I feel like a lot of what doesn't work about this movie isn't, like, doesn't hold up. It's like, now nah, everybody knew the dialogue was garbage in 1934. It's just, it was incredibly pretty looking. <laughs> right. And, like, it's still incredibly pretty looking. And so I want to give it a, like, relatively high score because of that, while also acknowledging, like, it is not good as a... F- as a film it is not it is good as a series of shots and not as a film it's very sexist it is like the male gaze made into a film it has moments of problematic racism but i have to say the the super sexy totally inappropriate definitely doesn't stand the screen test of time bit with like the leopard ladies is is totally entertaining. It's frankly hilarious. It is why I'm going to say that, like, should you watch this movie? Y- yeah, because it is so absurd that it wraps back around to fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I will agree. Like, I, I do think that this is... It's a lot. Like, you really gotta be... You, you gotta be ready for a movie that invented being extra, like, 70 years early. <laughs> But, like, there is a thing where this movie goes so in on the male gaze, it kind of becomes weirdly endearing. I don't know. Maybe that's just a thing I get to do because I'm a dude. Uh, Probably it is. I think there is definitely something to be said there because it does go so far into the male gaze as to become something that as a woman, and granted a woman who finds women attractive, there was still, like, some kind of level of... I hesitate to say empowerment, but it was like, here is this crazy ass three ring circus that has been put together of like barely dressed women. But the ringmaster is a barely dressed woman. (laughs) (laughs) She definitely has the most power, I think, in that scene of any other time in the movie. You know, that this is not the Cleopatra that we see 30 minutes later, who is like, no, you can't take my lover. Nah. It's the Cleopatra who's like, yeah, I got I got all these people together to do this totally absurd show for you because I can do that because I have that power. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. Like, I, I think that there's I also think there's a, a like comedy is life taken to 110 percent thing to the male gaze that like creates this weird you know, I know he means it. Like, Cecil B. DeMille does actually mean it, but it is so over the top. Oh, yeah, it becomes funny. Yeah. It's just excess. It is just minutes and minutes and minutes of excess. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess, like, should you watch this movie? Do you find women attractive? Do you find women pretty, even if you don't necessarily want to sleep with them? then yeah, probably you should watch this movie. I mean, I to me, it's how much patience do you have for a film where the story is garbage? If you are able to extend goodwill to a film 
where the quality isn't in the storytelling, then you, this will be a great film for you. If that's a bar you can't get past, if that if 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 you can't do the like shut off your brain and enjoy it thing with a movie, which I really understand, don't watch this movie. Yeah, yeah. If you can't enjoy spectacle for spectacle's sake, yeah, then it's not for you. If you can, this movie is wild and hilarious. <laughs> that's that's pretty much where I stand on it. Yeah, same. So what happens next week? One Night of Love, I believe, right? Is Claudette Colbert in this? <laughs> no. Our, our... So she is in 30% of the movies that were nominated this yeah, year. Yeah, our, our, I think our other Claudette Colbert is... Oh, Imitation of Life. Yeah, because she's not even in the Barretts of Wimple Street, which you would think. But we do also have a Ginger Rogers Fred Astaire movie coming up, which I'm looking forward to, uh, which I think I've said like four times. Yeah, it's actually a remake. Is it? It's a remake of The Divorcee. Yeah, it sure is. Oh, yeah. So next week is One Night of Love starring Grace Moore, who is from my hometown of Knoxville, Tennessee. All right. But who was also apparently a virulent racist. So, like, that sucks. You know, I've got to say, looking at just from the poster of her. Yeah. You can kind of tell. She kind of looks like she would hang out with the Proud Boys. <laughs> oh, God. It, anyway. Uh, we. Yeah. <laughs> So you you get to have that in your head as we watch this 83-minute film this week. And un until next week. Uh, this this was a movie. This was like... The boy, was this a movie. <laughs> this, this was a movie. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Hey, everybody. It's David reminding you, like always, to like, subscribe, and review us on iTunes iTunes doesn't show podcasts unless people do those things. So if you can do them, that would that be good because then more more people. You've I've done this spiel before, so I feel like you've probably heard this spiel before. Like, subscribe, review. Thanks. Love you guys. The fans make us everything we are.